0: Room of the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 19th. This week, President Biden was interviewed on ABC and he was asked about the filibuster.
1: So you're not likely to get Republican votes for the tax increase. You're not likely to get Republican votes for HR1, expanding voting rights, or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So aren't you gonna have to choose? I know you've been reluctant to do away with the filibuster. Aren't you going to have to choose between preserving the filibuster and advancing your agenda? Yes.
0: Biden gets asked about the filibuster a lot these days. And at this point, he says that he might be open to some reforms. I mean, you know, so the idea,
2: it it almost is getting to the point where there's, you know, democracy is having a hard time functioning,
0: a hard time functioning. The reality is, almost all of the ambitious things that Biden wants to do with his presidency, this sweeping agenda that would change our society, bills on voting and immigration and the minimum wage and climate change, almost none of that is actually possible right now because of the filibuster. But what I have been asking myself for these last few weeks, and I think what many Americans are wondering right now, is... What is the filibuster again? And why does it exist? Like, how did we end up in this place where even though bills in the Senate are supposed to pass with a simple majority of 51 votes, that you actually need 60 votes to pass those bills?
3: The disconnect between having a majority, which the Democrats now do, and needing 60 votes, which the Democrats can't get, that, that disconnect really is shaping up to be one of the defining power struggles of the Senate.
0: That's Post political reporter Philip Bump. And he is one of several people I talked to about how the filibuster came to be such a disruptive force in our democracy. Because I've heard a lot about the filibuster, especially lately. And it seems like the line from politicians is that this is this bedrock of our democracy. That it ensures bipartisanship, that it prevents one party from having too much power, that it protects the minority in the Senate...
1: It's basically designed, Chuck, to make sure the minority has input.
0: That's exactly our
1: founding fathers.
0: But what I didn't know is that a lot of these ideas about the filibuster are myths. In some cases, they are completely untrue. And in fact, the history of the filibuster is rooted in racism and slavery and a long campaign to block civil rights. But that's not the story that we usually tell. What is sort of like the pop culture understanding of the filibuster and what happens when someone filibusters?
3: Right, so people of a a certain age or people who happen to be fans of old movies are probably familiar with the the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Which is this film about how one man can make a difference even against the corrupt forces of the national government.
4: so ordered. Introduction of new bills and joint resolutions
3: but it has a scene in which Jimmy Stewart essentially stands
0: up and just gives a filibuster.
4: And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to leave this body until I do get them set.
0: In the movie, there's this corrupt senator trying to push through this unethical appropriations bill. President,
4: will the senator yield? senator yields? No, sir, I'm afraid not.
0: And Mr. Smith is the one trying to stop him.
4: And I'll tell you one thing, the wild horses aren't going to drag me off this floor until those people have heard everything I've got to say, even if it takes all winter.
0: By refusing to sit down for 25 hours.
5: Filibuster!
3: just speaks extemporaneously, really, as long as he possibly can in order to try and hopefully gin up enough support from the public to support his position and and change the minds of senators.
0: And the actor, Jimmy Stewart, gives this big, lofty speech about truth and morality and liberty.
2: Get up there with that lady that's up on top of this Capitol dome, that lady that stands for
4: liberty. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something.
3: And so there is, in the popular understanding of what the filibuster is, there's a sense of this being one crusading senator who stands up and does everything in his power to obstruct what he sees as an unjust piece of legislation.
5: I intend to speak in support of defunding Obamacare until I am no longer able to stand.
3: Ted Cruz had a brief semi-filibuster at one point. Rand Paul from Kentucky did. Bernie Sanders has done it.
2: You can call what I'm doing today, whatever you want. You can... Call it a filibuster, you can call it a very long speech. And I would go for another 12 hours to try to break Strom Thurmond's record, but I've discovered that there are some limits to filibustering, and I'm going to have to go take care of one of those in a few minutes
3: here. (laughs) So yeah, it is certainly still a political tactic to get up and speak for hours on end, and it gets cable news coverage. But it is also almost 180 degrees, let's say 179 degrees removed from what the filibuster actually is in practice today.
0: The reality is, filibusters of today usually sound much more like this. Mr. Hatch?
2: Mr. Hatch, no. Mr. Coates? Mr. Coates,
0: no. Mr. Bozeman, no. There are no grandiose speeches, no impassioned whatever. Nobody's standing up for 12 hours straight. It is a cut and dry procedural roadblock. And it's often as simple as voting no. Mr. Baucus, no.
2: The vote on this vote, the yeas are 54, the nays are 46. Under the previous order requiring 60 votes for the adoption of this amendment, the amendment is not agreed to.
0: The filibuster has come a very long way, but the origin of the filibuster is rooted in this idea that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Senate, the idea of unlimited debate.
3: So the Senate was formed directly as a counterpoint to the House of Representatives, and, and the upshot was that the House of Representatives, they're going to be elected every two years. You know, that's the rabble-rousing House. They are, are subject to the, the whims of the day, whereas the Senate is this august body, which instead, you know, is only elected every six years, and so they could be more conscientious about what it is that they're doing, and the only third of the Senators are up in any given federal uh, election cycle, yada, yada, yada. And so part of that was this idea that the Senate should also have a rule in which there was unlimited debate. If a Senator wanted to get up and say something about about a piece of legislation, he could do so and no one could stop him. And then they would all consider all points and, and, you know, make come to their conclusions. It's very idealistic in that way.
0: The idea that there could just be unlimited debate just feels like it's sort of fraught with
3: problems. Well, sure. Yeah. You know, at the time, I think they were a little more optimistic about how it would be treated.
0: Because back then, they thought that unlimited debate would be used to give senators time to persuade their colleagues to change their views or to convince them to make amendments, not to obstruct legislation altogether.
6: So it didn't start with the framers. In fact, the framers... Uh, almost certainly would have opposed the filibuster if someone had tried to invent it in their time.
0: That is Adam Gentleson. He's the author of a new book called Kill Switch The Rise of the Modern Senate and The Crippling of American Democracy, which spends a lot of time looking at the founding fathers and what they thought about the filibuster.
6: The evidentiary record is very clear on this. They were anti obstruction, they wanted the Senate to be a place for thoughtful debate but they made very clear that they were aware of the risks of letting a numerical minority block the majority after a reasonable amount of time. This is because they had just had firsthand personal experience with the Articles of Confederation, which did require a supermajority threshold in its Congress for most major pieces of legislation. And that had been a disaster. And so the framers were very clear that within this complicated system of checks and balances they created, Every decision point was supposed to be majority rule. They wanted bills to pass through this system in a deliberate and thoughtful way. But if they had majority support in the House and majority support in the Senate and could be signed by a president, they should pass into law.
0: But then in 1806, a loophole was created accidentally the Senate was trying to clean up their rulebook and eliminate redundancies. And they essentially deleted the language that could have been used to cut off debate. And for a long time, that wasn't a problem because nobody felt that they needed to cut off debate. But then that started to change. According to U.S. Senate historian Daniel Holt, by the mid-1800s, senators started to realize that this idea of unlimited debate could be used as a weapon. Because if the debate on a bill never ended, then you wouldn't be able to vote on that bill.
7: So the first examples of filibusters really comes into its own in the 1840s and 1850s. You start getting these organized long marathon speeches to block legislation, especially uh, surrounding organization of territories and the admission of new states because of what this meant for the balance of power in the Senate over slavery and free states.
0: The guy who helped come up with the idea of these acts of obstruction was John C. Calhoun, the racist senator from South Carolina. He found new ways to block bills that he feared would diminish the power and influence of slaveholding states. And he argued that the Senate needed to allow certain types of obstruction that came to be known as filibusters.
7: We tend to define, and political scientists tend to define filibusters basically as any act of obstruction, any effort to delay or prevent action on a measure.
0: And though the Hollywood version of the filibuster portrays it as this, like, great act of moral courage, that certainly was not true back when it first started being used.
7: It's noteworthy that in the 1850s that they call it the filibuster. It's, it's a derogatory term. Oh, really? It's rooted in uh, the Dutch term for pirate. The word was translated into freebooter. And so to call it a filibuster is to say that this is an illegitimate, piratical tool that really should not be used in the Senate.
0: As the 19th century went on, the filibuster was used infrequently. But when it was used, it was often used by Southern senators to protect their political power.
7: One of the most noteworthy ones is in 1890, when Democratic leader Arthur Pugh Gorman of Maryland orchestrates a filibuster to block a Republican bill to protect African-American voting rights in the South. This filibuster is noteworthy because it's really kind of the last effort that Republicans put forward to protect Black voting rights and it succeeded and, and prevented that bill from passing.
0: That was around the time when senators started looking around and saying, "Okay, we get that unlimited debate is this big tradition, but the fact that we have no way to stop these filibusters and just vote on a bill is clearly a problem. However, they didn't come up with a solution to that problem until 1917. And that solution came in the form of a procedure that has the most annoyingly cryptic, obscure name. Can I say that closure is such a weird word? It is a weird word. It's not the word closure. It somehow has a T in it.
7: It should be closure. And sometimes I'll say closure because it makes more sense and sounds better.
0: In 1917, the Senate passes a rule that puts in place this new mechanism called cloture. It's actually a French word. Apparently, it means conclusion or termination. Though, when I put cloture into Google Translate, the word that came up was fencing. So I kind of like to think of it as you're putting fencing around the debate. But anyways, this was supposed to be the solution to the problem that was created back in 1806 about how to end debate.
6: One way to think about this is every bill on its path to passage has to go through the tunnel of the debate period. So, when you can't bring a bill straight to the floor and go straight to a vote on whether to pass or fail it, um, you have to go through this period of debate. And the only way to end that period of debate is to vote for cloture or closure and to bring an end to that debate period.
0: So, when you vote for cloture, you're basically saying, okay, we have talked it out, we are done with debate, it is time to vote.
6: And when it was introduced, this rule was intended to be a tool to end filibusters. The idea was that when a filibuster had gone on for too long, there would always be a group of senators, regardless of where they stood on the issue, who were willing to vote to wrap the debate up and move on with the bill.
0: And back when cloture was introduced, you needed two-thirds of senators present to agree to it. So basically like 67%. But remember, the bill itself only needs 51% of votes to pass. It's just the vote to get to the vote that needs 67%, this much higher threshold. But this solution for how to deal with the filibuster did not end up working out as simply as they anticipated.
6: As early as the 1920s, civil rights bills had majority support in the House, majority support in the Senate, and the support of presidents of both parties. These were anti-lynching bills, anti-poll tax bills, and bills to combat workplace discrimination that were ready to be passed well before we we started actually passing civil rights bills in the late 1950s and 1960s. But what Southern senators started to combine the Jimmy Stewart talking filibuster with this supermajority threshold and basically tell proponents of civil rights bills If you want to end our filibusters, if you want to shut us up, we dare you to use this supermajority threshold to do it. And they started dressing it up, not in terms of reasonable senators agreeing that a debate had gone on for too long and, and the Senate should move on, but rather they presented it as an assault on minority rights. And they said, if you vote for closure, you are committing a crime against the sacred Senate tradition of minority rights. And the Southerners were able to back up this rhetoric with the enormous power they wielded in the Senate. At the time, Southerners were in control of all of the major committees in the Senate. So it was a bad career move to ever cross them. Those senators will not
7: invoke cloture on other members as a way to essentially reach an understanding that we really shouldn't be invoking cloture at all.
0: The thinking was like, I won't vote to end your debate and you won't vote to end my debate. And again, these filibusters were almost exclusively happening to bills intended to give more rights to Black people.
7: Right. And very few motions to invoke cloture are used, and the ones that are invoked are in the context of civil rights legislations, and those cloture votes
6: invariably fail. And so they basically created a de facto supermajority standard for the passage of civil rights bills and only civil rights bills, all other bills during this period continued to pass or fail on the basis of whether they could secure a majority only civil rights had to clear this higher threshold
7: one thing that i would i would add to that and, and obviously when it comes to civil rights legislation, you know, Southern Democrats lead the way in obstruction for these pieces of legislation. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that it's kind of an institution-wide failure to the extent that members of the Senate who are in favor of civil rights do not favor it with the intensity that the Southern Democrats opposed it. Like I said earlier, they there was a reluctance to use the mechanisms at hand to force adoption of these bills and much, you know, much to the detriment of the African-Americans in the country.
0: And that is super interesting to me, just from the idea that this rule essentially benefited the people who cared more about stopping something than the people who cared about passing something, that it seems like a mechanism that, that allows more for the status quo than for change.
7: Yeah, and it doesn't change until you get to the 1950s and 1960s.
0: I am therefore
1: asking the Congress to enact legislation, giving all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public. Hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores, and similar establishments. This seems to me to be an elementary right. Its denial is an arbitrary indignity that no American in 1963 should have to endure.
0: By this point, Southern senators had become highly adept at wielding the filibuster, both the procedural part of it with the requirement of 67 percent of votes and the part where you had to stand up on the floor of the Senate. In 1957, South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond actually set the record for the longest filibuster speech ever, 24 hours and 18 minutes. And in 1964, Senator Richard Russell of Georgia was the one making this public case against the civil rights bill.
1: We are now confronted on the floor of the Senate with the vicious, iniquitous civil rights bill
0: And again, you hear this argument from Southern senators saying that this filibuster is not about their racism or their belief in white supremacy, that this is about their rights, that these other senators are trampling on the rights of the Senate minority.
1: To wipe out any semblance of regular parliamentary procedure in the effort to cram this bill down our throats, I have stated on the floor of the Senate this afternoon that it seems that a legislative lynching of a minority is in prospect.
7: Southern senators especially start to argue that this ability of a minority to protect the rights of the minority is part of what the Senate is designed to do. And there's plenty of discussion over you know, how legitimate that argument is, but I do think it kind of takes a hold in the culture of the Senate
0: And yet another idea also takes hold in the Senate at the same time. The idea that if this civil rights bill is going to pass, it will take an enormous amount of unity and commitment and good faith negotiation among the senators to get 67 votes for cloture. And for all the problems with the filibuster, this is also part of its legacy. These moments when senators stand together on both sides of the aisle and send a message about what is right.
7: The Senate considered the Civil Rights Act of 1964 for months. Supporters of the bill spoke as well as opponents of the bill, and there was actual debate on the floor. While that debate was going on, Democratic leaders worked with the Republican leader, Everett Dirksen, to whip votes to reach that 67-vote threshold so that they could file cloture. It wasn't preordained at the beginning of that process that they were going to be able to get to that threshold. And so there's this idea that while that debate took place, that there's a lot of public attention to that debate on a daily basis, and that the public became more educated as they listened to the senators debate the issue. And um, that support for the act grew and that you know changes made to the bill behind the scenes were what led to the broad bipartisan support that ultimately pushed it over the edge in 1964. This
2: Civil
1: Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country.
7: And I think that episode, you know, it's it's really important because it's one of the most important pieces of legislation that the Senate ever passed and it was for the first time an example of a Southern filibuster on civil rights being defeated and I think that it, it does stand out as a as an important model that people that members uh, and other supporters of the filibuster look to that um, a determined majority can develop enough support to defeat a determined minority to get
5: um, legislation passed with broad bipartisan support. You know, I I mean, I do think it's it's easy to have that argument when it's not your rights, when um, it's not your sort of dignity, when it's not your liberty and ability to express your will for a better future that's being debated.
0: That is Rashad Robinson. He's the president of Color of Change, a civil rights organization. He wrote an opinion for USA Today recently about the need to end the filibuster. And he says that people often think about the conclusion of that filibuster in 1964 as this big moment of victory, like how great it was that the Senate unified to finally vote for closure. But he thinks about the part where the filibuster made it take so long to get there.
5: You know, people were literally being lynched, beaten, and killed in order for that legislation to happen. Blood was spilt in the streets in order to get to 60 plus votes. And unfortunately, sometimes I think the story gets told about the Civil Rights Act, and that story can feel very Disney-fied. It can feel like a story that, that doesn't include deep levels of loss, deep levels of pain, The consequences of the lost opportunities, of the blocked opportunities that challenges our community to this very day. And so, no, I don't think it was worth it. I don't think that the pain of my ancestors, the beating of my ancestors, the raping of my ancestors was was worth it to get to 67 votes. And I want a progress. I want a democracy. I want a set of rules that actually allows our voices to be heard.
0: The story of the evolution of the filibuster is the story of unintended consequences. Senators notice a problem, they change the rules to provide a solution to that problem, and then that change in the rules creates another problem, or makes the original problem worse. And that's the story of how we got to the silent filibuster. By the early 1970s, a growing number of senators wanted filibuster reform. After years of attempts by liberal senators to make it easier to cut off debate, the Senate reached a compromise in 1975 to lower the threshold from two-thirds to three-fifths, but of all senators sworn rather than of those voting. So that got us to the current 60-vote threshold that we have today. Senate leadership also believed that filibusters were too disruptive. And they came up with this system that when filibusters happened, it wouldn't have to stop everything else in the Senate. Like, you wouldn't have to have people held hostage by this guy talking for 25 straight hours. A senator could just say that they were planning to filibuster, and that would essentially serve the same purpose of holding up the bill without all the drama. It was a silent filibuster. Except... There were unintended consequences, and you can see that today. But I actually, I don't fundamentally understand, like, how does the filibuster actually happen these days? Is it like a phone call that usually happens, or is it like an email that gets sent to the majority leader, or is it just sort of known that if Senate Democrats were to bring the Green New Deal to the floor tomorrow, that, like, nobody's going to vote for it, and so the whole thing is pointless anyways, or?
6: It's sort of all of the above. It it can, it can be any of those methods of communication. It could be a phone call, could be an email from a staff member, not even directly to the majority leader, but, you know, to the staff in the close room. So it's it's totally casual. And it's become so common that it is now assumed that somebody will be registering this objection and causing the, the votes to rise up to 60 votes.
0: That, again, is Adam Gentelson. And the reason that he knows so much about this process is that he actually used to work as a staffer in the Senate. He was a senior aide to Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid during the Obama years. And he saw this process play out again and again, the ways that the filibuster was fundamentally changing how the Senate worked.
6: When the majority leader is considering bringing a bill to the floor, one of the first things they do is send what's called a hotline, which is basically an email to all of the members of their caucus saying, I'm thinking about bringing this bill to the floor. Does anybody plan on filibustering it? And almost always somebody responds and says yes. And it's that single response that causes the number of votes it takes to pass that bill to rise from a simple majority, up to 60 votes. Because that one email, that one objection says that there is a senator who, technically what the senator is saying is that I refuse to let this debate period end. Mm. And the only way the majority leader can respond to that is by getting 60 votes to overcome that objection and that debate period. And in today's polarized environment, getting 60 votes for anything is extraordinarily difficult and basically impossible.
0: And for Adam, there is this one moment in his mind that sticks out of when he became convinced that these changes to the rules of the filibuster over the years had truly turned into a crisis.
6: The clarifying moment for me was in April of 2013, when the Senate was trying to respond to the massacre of first graders in Newtown, Connecticut, um, who, as we all remember, were were shot dead with uh, an AR-15 assault rifle. This is
1: our first task as a society, keeping our children safe. This is how we will be judged. And their voices should compel us to change.
6: And the Senate was trying to respond to this horrible event in what seemed like a very common sense way, which was to pass a bill uh, mandating universal background checks for gun purchases. The Bill had the support of a bipartisan group of senators. It was sponsored by Joe Manchin of West Virginia, a Democrat, and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, a Republican. It had the support of 55 senators. Uh, That group itself was bipartisan as well. But it failed on a filibuster. There really wasn't much debate at all. that was the moment that it really hit home for me that that something was wrong here. The Senate was not acting as a cooling saucer. There was no wisdom in this delay or this block. This was just causing our government to be incapable of responding in a common-sense way to an urgent problem.
0: That year, 2013, ended up being the beginning of a new era of changes to the filibuster. But this time, senators were whittling down the power of the filibuster. Right, so a few a few things happened again that is philip bump national politics correspondent for the post
3: one of the things that happened was that american governance became increasingly polarized because that meant closer margins in the senate in particular because that then meant greater incentive for the minority party in the Senate to try and obstruct the majority because that's what their base often was calling for. It meant that we started to see the number of times filibusters were being invoked creeping up. And so what happened in 2013 then was that Barack Obama had been elected to his second term in office and Democrats were controlling the majority in the Senate. Over the course of that year, there was a lot of pressure on Republicans to really push back on what Democrats were doing broadly. And one of the ways in which that manifested was that there was pushback on nominees that President Obama had made to fill positions.
1: Even one of the Senate's most basic duties, confirmation of presidential nominees, has become completely unworkable.
0: This is Harry Reid, who was Senate Majority Leader at the time.
1: For the first time in the history of our republic... Republicans have routinely used the filibuster to prevent President Obama from appointing his executive team or confirming judges.
3: And so there was an increasing push among Democrats to change the rules around filibuster, to use what was called then the nuclear option, to revise the filibuster rule so that it wouldn't require 60 votes in order to approve one of these nominees.
1: The need for change is so, so very obvious. It's clearly visible. It's manifest. We have to do something to change things.
3: And in 2013, that's what then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid did. He changed the rules using a majority vote of his party to make it so that nominees to all positions besides the Supreme Court wouldn't be able to be filibustered. That could be approved with only 50 votes in the 100-person Senate. And that changed the filibuster.
1: That's why it's time to get the Senate working again. Not for the good of the current Democratic majority or some future Republican majority but for the good of the United States of America.
0: So that was the first big change of the modern era, changing the rules so you only needed a simple majority to break a filibuster for most judicial and executive branch nominees, with the big exception of Supreme Court justices.
3: And that was sort of seen as a trigger for eroding the power of the filibuster from the Democrats' perspective for a very good use, and from the perspective of the Republicans, it was seen as sort of an affront to history.
4: Once again, Senate Democrats are threatening to break the rules of the Senate, break the rules of the Senate, in order to change the rules of the Senate. And over what? Over what?
0: Then the tables turned. Republicans got control of the Senate, Trump became president, and it was Democrats who wanted to block the nomination of Neil Gorsuch for a Supreme Court seat that they felt was stolen from them. But Mitch McConnell was not just going to allow this nominee to be filibustered.
4: Due to the threat of an unprecedented partisan filibuster, I'll file cloture on the nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to be an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court.
3: And so McConnell, then the Senate majority leader, changed the rules again, using a majority vote of Republicans. He authorized, or essentially the Republican caucus, authorized confirming Supreme Court nominees with a a simple majority vote in the Senate as well. So it was another erosion of the power of the filibuster to demand that a 60-vote margin be met.
0: And at the time, it seemed like Mitch McConnell had kind of a, like, tit-for-tat argument about why it was okay for them to change the filibuster rules when it came to Supreme Court nominees. He basically said, look, Democrats did it first. We warned them back when Harry Reid chose to change these rules that it could come around to bite them. And here we are changing the rules in a way that's advantageous for us in this moment. And you should have expected that when you started messing with the rules in the first place.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of dubiously sincere argumentation around the filibuster and a lot of hand-wringing about how important this is to the institution and how necessary it is to allow this free debate and yada, yada, yada. And then when one party or the other gets into power, they're like, well, eh, you know, we maybe we should reconsider this thing after all. Like, it is certainly the case that the filibuster is used on both sides. And now, of course, Republican arguments that the filibuster must be maintained in order to uh, fulfill the, the high standards of the founding fathers it should be taken with all according grains of salt.
0: Now this question is coming up again. What to do with the filibuster? And there are a lot of different ideas. Get rid of the filibuster altogether. Or what about diminishing the power of the filibuster so you can pass legislation or questions of statehood with just 51 votes rather than 60 votes? Or you can make it so that you would need more than one senator to actually initiate a filibuster. You'd need five or 10 senators who are willing to put their names to it. Or what about going back to the days of the talking filibuster, where if you really are going to do it, you have to stand up and hold the floor and really do it in the way that you see in the movies. Get up there with
4: that lady!
0: That is actually President Biden's most recent stance on the filibuster from his interview with George Stephanopoulos this week.
2: I don't think you have to eliminate the filibuster. You have to do it what it used to be when I first got to the Senate and back in the old days when you used to be around there. And that is that a filibuster, you had to stand up and command the floor. And you had to keep talking alone. You couldn't call for, you know, uh, they, no, no one could say, you know, quorum call. Once you stopped talking, you lost that. And someone could move in and say, I moved the question of. So you got to work for the filibuster. So you're for that reform. You're for bringing back the talking filibuster. I am. That's what it was supposed to be.
0: The fact that Biden is apparently loosening his stance on changing the rules of the Senate is clearly worrying Republicans.
4: Nobody serving in this chamber can even begin, can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched earth Senate would look like.
0: Mitch McConnell gave this speech on Tuesday on the floor of the Senate saying that further changes to the filibuster would not only fly in the face of the history of the Senate, but there would also be intense retribution.
4: Everything that Democrat Senates did to Presidents Bush and Trump, everything the Republican Senate did to President Obama would be child's play compared to the disaster that Democrats would create for their own priorities if, if. They break the Senate,
0: but it's not just Republicans that are against getting rid of the filibuster.
3: There are Democrats, more moderate dem- Democrats, typically, who are not supportive of the idea. Folks like uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia,
0: and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, has also said that she is adamantly opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. Though more recently, at least, Manchin has indicated that he could be open to some kinds of reforms like going back to the talking filibuster that Biden suggested so that it would be more painful for Republicans who want to filibuster but still, that is a long way from getting rid of the filibuster altogether.
3: And I think there are probably two main reasons why he and others are less enthusiastic about this idea. I think the first is that he sincerely believes that the Senate should be a deliberative body which achieves some sort of consensus in order to pass legislation. It's very idealized. It's not necessarily something uh, which a recent observer of the Senate would say is, is uh, sort of the way that the chamber behaves. Uh, but I think there is that sense that it's how it should be. That said, it's also the case that Joe Manchin represents a, an increasingly and in very deep red state, uh, and he does not want to be the guy who uh, oversees a change in Senate power that makes it so the Democrats can you know, simply do whatever they want, because then he has to go back home to West Virginia and explain to his voters uh, why he thought that was okay.
0: That might be true, but more and more, even establishment Democrats are acknowledging that some of these traditional arguments defending the filibuster are totally bogus, the founding fathers did not invent the filibuster, and they didn't intend for the minority to be able to obstruct the majority. And clearly, the filibuster in practice does not, in fact, foster consensus or bipartisanship,
6: so yeah, you've 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 made obstruction easy, and it's not just preserving the status quo. I, I would take it a step further and say there is a a lot to be gained by the party out of power from the act of obstruction. Mm -hmm. This is sort of what Republicans proved under Obama, and this was sort of the radical experiment that Mitch McConnell carried out. He placed a bet that Republicans would not get blamed for obstructing Obama and manufacturing gridlock in Washington, and that in fact, Obama would bear the brunt of the blame And it turned out that he was right from a purely political perspective. Democrats bore the blame. Republicans swept back to power in the 2010 midterms, the first midterms after Obama was elected. They won back the House and permanently crippled his his presidency. So it was a, a bold move politically, but it worked. And you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Now that people see that the party out of power gains politically from obstruction and that they don't really get any blame for it people are going to keep doing it because it's simply a rational political calculation for them to do so.
0: Hmm. But what you're saying is, like, completely opposite from the arguments that people are making about keeping the filibuster, that like that the, the filibuster is necessary to encourage bipartisanship and negotiation, and that if we want to get back to a time of people working across the aisle to strike compromise, that getting rid of the filibuster will veer us further away from that. But, but it sounds like you were saying that the filibuster is actually already veering us further away from that.
6: Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and in fact, what's interesting about this is that the framers predicted this too. They foresaw that creating a supermajority threshold would provide an irresistible temptation for the party out of power to manufacture gridlock and prevent the party in power from getting anything done.
0: Interesting. Because what you're saying is essentially that when you are in the minority, and especially when there is a 60 vote threshold, that the reward for just obstructing the majority and essentially making them fall on their butts and not be able to pass anything that they promised to pass in the first place, that the rewards for embarrassing them are much more immediate or much higher than the rewards for actually trying to find a way to get a little bit of what you want done by working with the majority.
6: That's right. And that's compounded by the fact that we live in this era uh, of what the political scientist Francis Lee has called insecure majorities, which means that the majority is usually very narrowly divided, which on the one hand, you might think, would promote compromise because both parties have about equal amounts of power. Maybe there's more incentive for them to work together. But just like with the supermajority, it has the opposite effect. Because the party that's out of power is so close to being able to regain the majority, they have even more incentive to cause the party that is in the majority to look bad so that the party out of power can pick up the two or three seats they need to get back in the majority
0: that that your your goal of getting back the majority is so close, so close. that you want a gun for that rather than trying to come up with a long-term strategy to still get stuff done that you just like
6: yeah and and there there it's even presented in sort of a noble way uh by the leaders because what they'll do is they'll go to a senator um say you know a senator like like a Susan Collins type you know, say that this senator is thinking about working with Democrats on an issue like climate change, and the minority leader will say to that senator, um, hey, listen, I know you really care about this issue, but instead of working with Democrats on it and giving them a win, why don't you stick with the team and help us regain the majority? Because even on this issue that you care about, you'll be able to have more of an impact on this issue If we're in the majority, you could be the chair of the committee instead of the ranking member. You could write the bill yourself. Uh, And so it's even sort of presented to them in this sort of noble way, in this policy-focused way, that even if their overriding interest is to advance a certain policy issue, they can do more on that issue if they help their team regain the majority. (laughs)
0: So even if these last holdout Democrat senators did agree to reform the filibuster in a meaningful way, like if they changed the rules so that you would only need 51 votes instead of 60, it is hard to imagine that that would actually fix these problems of polarization or or bring us back to some ideal of
6: bipartisanship. You know, it would take some time, but I think what you would start to see is that the minority would realize there's not a whole lot of point in their opposition because they can no longer achieve what they could achieve in the past, which was to block the majority from passing anything. And so you might start to see members of the minority creep back over and say, "Ah, I'm actually interested in, in working with you on this, because if you cooperate, you can actually have some influence over the direction of the legislation. And you can actually go back to your own constituents and say that you did something. And this is actually what you used to see happen in the Senate.
0: Adam brought up this example of the bill that established Medicare. So Lyndon B. Johnson only needed 51 votes to pass the bill because it wasn't being filibustered. And still, it was really hard to get to those 51 votes at first. But once they got to 51, things totally changed.
6: Once it became clear to senators that Medicare was passing with or without their support because it had secured a majority... A bunch more senators jumped on board, and its support shot up to 70. So I think what you might see is issues will continue to be fought tooth and nail until they show they can secure a majority. And then once they're going to pass, you might see other senators jump on board or try to have some last-minute influence on the direction of negotiation. But there's less to be gained from obstruction when you can't actually stop the other side from moving forward.
0: These days, there's also more attention being paid to the roots of the filibuster, Because the fact that right now the filibuster is standing in the way of reforms on voting rights and on bills intended to change the lives of people of color, that is not an accident. That is actually pretty consistent with the filibuster's original objective, to preserve slavery and obstruct civil rights for Black people.
5: The system is not broken. The system is actually operating the way it was designed to operate. And it was designed to actually prevent This type of progress. Again, that's Rashad Robinson of Color of Change. And, you know, the thing that I think is important for listeners to understand is that we can have all of these conversations about the George Floyd Act or conversations about minimum wage or conversations about gun legislation, about things that are widely popular, right, across the country. But, and we can mobilize and we can, you know, get people to sign petitions and have people show up to rallies. All with a deep understanding that we're, it's like we're trying to dunk a basketball on a hoop that is 15 feet high. We have created this story about how change happens that is not actually how change happens.
0: Well, what about the argument that being able to have power as a minority in the Senate is something that will be beneficial for Democrats going forward? I mean, obviously, the the margin that Democrats have in the Senate right now is the narrowest possible margin. And it's very easy to imagine that the world can be different in two years and Republicans can have control again. And and what power would Democrats be giving a future Republican Senate if they lower this threshold? Like, is there a risk in basically uh, getting rid of the last line of defense?
5: You know, this idea that if we you know, hold back from making the changes to do that, then maybe the Republicans will be nicer to us when they get into office. That's simply not something that's played out in reality. And it's certainly not an experience that black people have in this country. And of course, even if
0: Democrats kept the filibuster exactly as it is now, there would be nothing to stop Republicans from changing the rules completely the next time they're in control of the Senate.
5: You know, just like I remember sitting in Senator Schumer's office in New York shortly after Trump was elected and Senator Schumer talking to me and a a number of other progressive leaders about how there were enough institutionalists on the Republican side and the Senate. And he named people like Orrin Hatch and Lindsey Graham and others, institutionalists who would not do away with the filibuster when it came to judges, And he like had us convinced even after Mitch McConnell stole that seat from Merrick Garland. Right. But all of that to say, we have no reason to believe that when the Republicans get into power or if the Republicans get into power, that they will not use these levers to sort of make good on their attempts to hold on to power. What's really different is that the Democrats actually for the last several elections have won the popular vote. For the last several elections, Americans, um, the majority of Americans actually believe in their policies.
0: And when Rashad thinks about this decision that's facing Senate Democrats right now, he thinks about all those successful filibusters in the 80 years before the Civil Rights Act all those senators who said that they cared about civil rights and who said that they cared about the welfare of Black Americans, but didn't care enough to use all the levers of power that were given to them to
5: make change happen. And so I do think that folks who are in power right now, whether they are in the Senate, whether they're in the House, or whether they are in the White House, they all should know that coming back to the community in 2022 and saying, well, we couldn't get any of these things done because of the filibuster, and then to have all these conversations about the filibuster, and then tell us that they actually don't believe in getting rid of the filibuster, that's not going to be a sales pitch that is going to produce the type of turnout that we're going to need to continue forward progress.
0: And of course, Democrats like Rashad and Adam have an agenda here. Of course, they want to pass what they want to pass and to change the rules to advantage their political party. But as Adam points out, whatever side of the political aisle that you're on, you can't look at the Senate today and say that it's working. And that might be the ultimate argument that something might need to change.
6: The fundamental purpose of the Senate is not to preserve its own rules or to preserve comedy or anything like that. It's to produce thoughtful policy solutions to the challenges that we face today. Right now, it is, it is headed towards becoming just another failed institution that proved incapable of dealing with the challenges of the modern era. And it's headed on that track very quickly. In order to save itself, it has to restore its ability to act and act in a thoughtful and reasonably responsive manner. And if it can't do that, it's going to be a failed institution.
0: This story was produced by Lena Mohammed and me. It was edited and mixed by Ted Muldoon with reporting and fact-checking help from Arjun Singh. The experts who heard in this story were Rashad Robinson, Adam Gentleson, Philip Bump, and Daniel Holt, who was incredibly helpful with all the historical facts and details we heard in this episode. In today's show notes, we're putting a link to Rashad's opinion piece in USA Today about his case for ending the filibuster. We'll also put a link to Adam's book, switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate, and The Crippling of American Democracy. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Dio and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our associate producers are Ariel Potnik and Renny Sranovsky. Our producers are Jordan Marie Smith and Lena Muhammad. I will be on vacation for the next week, and so you will hear Lena filling in as the host of Post Reports for the next few days. As you know, she will be fabulous. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.